Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, see the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Today, our guest is renowned writer and Australian treasure, Martin Flanagan. Readers of the Melbourne Age will be familiar with his byline and mastery of the English language, as will sports fans and others who may have read his books on Australian rules football. Martin also has a long history of writing about Indigenous issues and is an exceptionally curious individual. Hi, Martin. Thanks so much for making time to chat today. I mentioned your innately curious nature just now. Is that what drew you to Igniting Change? I think what drew me to Igniting Change was that one aspect of journalism or the thing about journalism which which has always been very important to me is that to me the story begins when you overcome your preconception and um, a lot of my preconceptions about the world are negative as I think a lot of people's preconceptions who get fed their view of the world by the media are. A A preconception sort of always is I suppose. Negative, isn't it? You know, I'm just trying to think of a positive preconception. I can't... Oh, meeting you. That's one. There you go. <laughs> positive preconception. Sorry. Well, yeah, Continue. <laughs> well, so that's, that's been a really important psychological function that journalism has played for me because a lot of people, because my writing is optimistic, a lot of people think I am an optimist, but I'm not. I'm a pessimist. And that's how I balance my nature is by going out and, 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 and finding things which are contrary to my preconceptions which make my heart sing and then I write down the song that's that's really what I've always done and so um, having left the age and then written a book on the Bulldogs premiership which is a happy story very happy story yeah like a Beatles song and then Jane and I had known one another through my wife Polly and we had always been interested in doing something together and the time appeared where where we both had the time and the opportunity to do it, even though we didn't know what we were going to do. Um, but the, the essence of what attracts me to Igniting Change and what Jane does is that, I mean, I think what she does works. I think it's good news and I think there's a desperate need in the world right now for good news. So what are you going to do with Igniting Change? Well, I'm going to spend a year with Igniting Change. I just keep going to things with Jane into prisons, into safe meeting houses for sex workers. Wherever she goes, I go with her and just experience it and, and, and write about those experiences. And at the same time, I get to know her better. And hopefully, at the end of it, I can paint a portrait of her surrounded by examples of what it is she's done and the people she's connected me to. But you don't write portraits, you don't write books just willy-nilly there's a chord that's been struck absolutely I mean um I believe in her I believe in her and I believe in what she does and you know there's a there's a saying in footy if a player's out of form put him on the best player in the other team and the best player will lead him to the ball or Jane leads me to the ball she leads me to seeing things which are 
which are socially worthwhile. She leads me to see things that a lot of people don't believe can happen. It's so important right now that where there are good things happening, it's just so important that news of them gets out. We don't seem to have a, an abiding, enduring, positive philosophy. And I just see in what she does, it's, it's not just a philosophy, it's an energy. There's an energy in what she does, and it's a good energy. And if I could write a book that um, at the end of it, people felt that energy and felt that hope and thought, well, hang on, maybe I can do something. If, if I can do that, then I will, I'll be happy with the book. For me, it's that sense of I'm often ashamed of what I'll think about somebody before I've met them or, or you know, see someone on the street and have all these, as we talked about before, preconceived ideas, there's preconceptions. But Jane just doesn't seem to have that gene. You know, there's nothing in her that is nasty is a, is a simple way of putting it but it's 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 her way of seeing things that I sit down and I put on those glasses and all of a sudden you know you, you feel like you've caught it a bit. Yeah, well I'm still trying to work her out I mean she's um, it's like watching an artist paint it's like watching a great sportsman play I don't know how much she knows about what, she, what it is she does or or whether she could define the nature of her gift but there are things about it which I really notice. One is her humility. She's a classless person who's got class and that's real class. Mm. Her decisions on when to go and when to hold back, she's really good at that mm. and she's highly creative. She sort of measures people in terms of energy and she meets person A and senses they've got a certain energy and then you know, two weeks later she meets person X and she goes, hang on, if, I put that, if you put energy A with energy X, you could get a third energy. Well, she's an alchemist. Yeah, she's an alchemist, <laughs> a human alchemist. Um, so she's got a really unusual mix of qualities and then she set up this really unusual organisation which is almost anarchist in that the bureaucracy never gets in the way of the human need. And so that enables it to be very creative. Speaking of creative environments, when did you know that you could write? I never wanted to do anything else. I started about seven or eight. Growing up, I never thought that I would be able to do it because I didn't know anyone like me who did. In Tasmania, the writers were very English-Australian, very English. Um, I was from an Irish-Australian background and my writing is more in that tradition. And then um, Tasmania was such a bewildering place to grow up in because none of the history made sense. Uh, and there was this terrible sense of absence. No one spoke about the people I was from, the Irish convicts, in terms of their language and their customs, their songs, their stories. What did they talk about? Well, there was this enormous silence. There was, there was that silence and then there was this second silence, which was what had happened to the people who were there before them. So... The difference between Tasmania and Victoria is profound. Like mm. In Australia, we don't pay enough heed to regional difference. Well, they're like different countries. Different psychologies, certainly. Mm. Tasmania's a psychology of absence. Like, you cross Bass Strait, some of the greatest seal populations of the world used to be there, not there anymore. The, the, the symbol of the states, the thylacine, not there anymore. And then, as a kid, you grow up with this face of this woman who was, when I was a child, called the last Tasmanian the last Tasmanian Aboriginal person, that was Truganini, this mm. great, haunted, doomed face. Mm. Uh, whereas Victoria, 
comes out of a gold rush. Victoria has the first, the Eureka Stockade has the first armed uprising by, by citizens, as distinct from convicts, against the government. And although they lost, they won, because it, they, they fed into the impetus for democratic reform. And, and it's in that period that all these other things happen, like Burke and Wills, Ned Kelly, again, he loses, but he wins. And Australian football, they all come Heroes. out of... Well, they all come out of that same period of optimism and well that never happened in Tasmania mm. and so you could feel that as a child that it was mate it just did not make sense mm. it did not make sense and there was not and I didn't connect to my mother's religion which was Irish Irish Australian Catholicism mm-hmm. and I didn't have much to do with my parents I, I felt my mother and I differed on religion from the age of eight wow. my father was a silent father I went to boarding school at 10 by the time I left that at 16 I was away on another trajectory and the person who had the biggest influence on my life was one of my older brothers he encouraged me to write and whenever I had anything published he would always keep a copy of it mm, you wrote about him on the last day yeah I did he was yeah. my, he was the last it's that beautiful. was my thank you to him I uh, love that piece yeah. it actually made me think about my relationships with my siblings and yeah. I'm the youngest of seven so it's Are you, really yeah, yeah. so, uh, so what yeah. was your maiden name Horgan and where's that from Cork Oh, really? Mm. My mother's from Cork. She's oh. a Leary. <laughs> We're probably related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but back to your writing. Why do you think then that your, your other brother and you both became writers? What was it? Was it that whole sense of questions that aren't answered in Tasmania for both of you? Or do, have you talked about it? Yeah, we have. I mean, I, I did write in one of my books, you know, because um, my, my younger sister was the one my parents thought would be the writer. She was the the one they really, and, and she can really write, but she just hasn't written any books. But So I was the fourth child, Richard's the fifth, and my sister Jo was the sixth. Mm. And I, I once wrote, people ask if I come from a literary background, um, I say I come from a, a kitchen table with seven <laughs> people around it all trying to get a word in. The youngest three didn't, so they, so they wrote books. But um, no, Richard, yeah, no, he definitely felt the same as me. But whereas I connected, I, whereas... Because I couldn't explain this place, but I understood sport culturally. Like footy was the first place I encountered dance. It was the first place I encountered mythology. It was the first place I encountered a passion play. Or it's the first place I encountered local culture. My first footy hero—I didn't know it at the time—but he was of Tasmanian Aboriginal descent, and he had a big that had a big influence on me. And so a lot of I got it that way. But Richard didn't get into footy and cricket. He got into the he. By that stage, we were living on the West Coast and he got into the wilderness. Mm. And he, so he, he went that way. But to me, I, I, would, I would pay my brother this compliment that all the attitudes of cultural inferiority that Australians had during the 60s and the belief that in Millencondra's words, life is elsewhere and that Australia was this sort of cultural backwater, within Australia that was all projected onto Tasmania... And he was the one who sort of stood up and said, no, I'm not copping it, you know. This is an amazing place with amazing stories and I'm going to write about them. I'm tell them. Yeah, mm. and I'm going to write about them big. From my observation, Tasmania's coming, not full circle, but I think that it's becoming in itself now a place of huge tourist interest. Mm. Overseas people can't believe the pristine mm. nature of the bush and the water and the food. Do you think Tasmania is dealing with it? Tasmania is 
absolutely in an incredible state of flux. Mm. It's uh, vulnerable, isn't it? It's vulnerable. Well, I think Australia's vulnerable. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, this is an enormous period of change. And to get back to igniting change, one of the things that's really important, I think, about what Jane does... See, when Jane and I go out, Jane's an enthusiast and people tell stories and she'll turn around and she'll say, what did you think of that? And, um, <laughs> and uh, I frequently have... I frequent, what, what I have to say to her is that I'm a journalist. Like, I've, I've heard so many of these sort of speeches over the years that they don't move me like they move her. The, the question for me every time is, is what they're doing, does it work? That's, that's always the question. And she's now taken me to a series of things. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a sceptic, but she, she's taken me to a series of things which I am satisfied, which I believe work. What like? The Youth Prevention Centre at Port Phillip Prison. I mean, um, we go in there... Because I used to work in a prison in my twenties, so and I've been in a few, and that's a different place and it's different eerie. Um, we get to that that part of it that Anne Hooker runs, and it's got a different feeling to it. And then she invites two young men in to talk to us. One's in for murder, one's in for manslaughter, having driven drunk, gone through an intersection at 160 k's and hit a young woman and killed her. And when you ask them what the difference is between the Youth Prevention Centre and the rest of the prison, uh, the young murderer says, in the rest of the prison, you have to travel with or be part of a group or you're a target. In here, you don't have to think about survival all the time. Because you don't have to think about survival all the time, you can think about change. And then this other young guy comes in and they both say the same thing. So that place works because it has created a culture within the prison culture that is separate and apart and better than the prison culture. And because of that, rehabilitation becomes a possibility. It's extraordinary, isn't it? The sense of, and I've been in a regular prison before too, and, and you can just feel the air's different in, yeah. that, in that little yeah. area where the, the youth unit is. And, yeah. and Anne Hooker is like a mother hen. She's extraordinary. Yeah. But she looks after those guys like her little chicks. Yeah. There's a certain amount of tenderness, but it's, it's masked in, in the pathways of people in rehab. Yeah. You know, people making themselves better than they were when they went in. Yeah. That's one of the most powerful visits that I did too. Yeah. I, I suppose what I really like about what Anne Hooker does is, is that she's utterly real. You know, like... I met her here first in the office of Igniting Change and, you know, she smiled before every sentence. You know, she's got an amazing smile. And when we get to the prison, the smile hasn't gone, but it's a lot less frequent. And she says, I never forget for one moment that I'm working in a dangerous environment and that a young man who's been pleasant, entirely pleasant for two years can't suddenly turn and change. Well, that's, that's real. And... That's what I really respect. This is what I keep saying to, to, uh, to Jane is I've reached the stage of my life where I don't believe in any rhetoric. I don't believe in political rhetoric. I don't believe in religious rhetoric. It doesn't matter how grand the political rhetoric is, it can be corrupted and used for the opposite purpose. I think Shakespeare said the devil can cite scripture to his own end. What I believe in is when I see something that works and that's, that's the key 
about igniting change for me and that's that's what I want to record. I know you talked about the football player that you first followed was, was Aboriginal. Yeah. Was that what sparked your interest in that sort of relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous or was there something else? Well, my mother was from the, the land and I always had a great desire to have a connection with the land. My father actually looked as if he could have been Aboriginal and he was mistaken for Aboriginal at various times of his life. But there's no evidence whatsoever in our family history that he was. But a lot of Aboriginal people over the years have said to me that they, you know, they wondered if I was Aboriginal. But I've always had this, always had this desire to belong to the land. And as I said, I, I grew up in Tasmania. It was a complete mystery to me. I couldn't connect. And so when I was very young, being Irish Australian with one English convict forebear who I think was incredibly influential in our family history, an English nonconformist. But mm-hmm. I thought we must be Irish, so I went to Ireland when I was 24. And I wandered around Southern Ireland and I didn't really connect. And I was, I remember I had a sort of moment of existential crisis in Dublin. I thought, <laughs> I don't belong over there, I don't belong here. Yeah. We're, when you were expecting to get to Ireland and feel home. an affinity, yeah. So then I uh, hitchhiked into Northern Ireland, which was then in a state of civil war. And I had this series of amazing experiences. And basically, because I'd gone back to connect with my Irish Catholic roots, mm-hmm. and I hitchhiked into Northern Ireland, and this Protestant Irishman saved my ass. And uh, then a series of Protestant Irish people were incredibly good to me. So I met this fundamental paradox, you know. I'd gone back to connect with the, my Irish Catholic roots and, in fact, connected with a series of Protestant Irish people. So that alerted me to this fundamental paradox in life. And I spent two years wandering the world uh, and I ended up in Africa and I got sick in Africa. And I came back to Australia. And it was after I got back that I started meeting Aboriginal people. And How? F- well... I'd been in a street fight in Hobart oh. uh, in my, before I'd gone away. Mm-hmm. One night I played footy with a bloke called Boong because we were always told at school that there were no Aboriginal people in Tasmania. And oh. So we, we were in this back street of Hobart and he's up the other end. We've all been drinking and, and I've yelled, hey, Boong, come on, hurry up, hurry up, will you? And all of a sudden about 20 dark-skinned men have shot out this house because they think I'm yelling at them. And they've come at us and this bloke's coming at me and you know, throwing punches like he could really fight. And I'm looking at him and thinking, Jesus, he looks like Lionel Rose. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's bizarre. Oh, yeah. So it. you just thought that there were no... We, we were brought up. Oh, I mean, jeepers. yeah, my son-in-law is of Tasmanian Aboriginal descent, as is my grandson. But at that stage, we, um, yeah, we were told there were none. And so that was when I began to think that the history books might not have told me everything. Truth. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but then... When I came back, I did, I, was a, I did a law degree at university and then I worked a bit in Hobart Prison and then I wandered the world and then I came back and I got into journalism and particularly after I came to Melbourne, I took every opportunity to work with Aboriginal people and do stories with Aboriginal people. Anywhere, anytime, I took the opportunity to do that and that was when the defining irony of my life occurred I finally met people who understood this quest I was on and the quest I was on was to try and understand how as a person whose spiritual tradition came from another part of the world how did I belong in this land Mm. and as I met some great series of great Aboriginal elders 
particularly during the cultural wars of the 90s, you know, like people like me, and I still get it to some extent, you know, you're called a white romantic and people say you're motivated by guilt. I'm not motivated by guilt in my relationship towards Aboriginal people. And the reason I'm not is because not one of the great Aboriginal people I've met has ever expected it of me. Hmm. And if they don't expect it of me, then I don't feel I have to give it. But they confirm me in my belief and they confirm me in my sense of my path of, about what I was doing to try and work out who I was and how I belonged in this land. And they also understood why I wrote the sort of stories I did. And when my first novel came out and it got attacked by a few people big time, I remember this Aboriginal bloke said to me, he said, don't, don't, don't worry about that, brother. He said, we know who you are. Uh, you come from the art. Well, in the heart, you come mm. from the art. Mm. And they always seemed to understand who I was and where I was coming from and to the extent that I didn't have to explain a lot of things to them. I always felt at home with them and at what ease they, with them. What did they teach you? Uh, more than anything else, they taught me to come from the heart and to speak from the heart. And the, the thing I say when people ask me about Aboriginal stuff is um, the most important thing we can do is, is just listen to Aboriginal voices. And um, I combined that because journalism is just the best job because, I mean, the people you meet. I met Gandhi's grandson and I had a relationship with him for a while and I'll never forget him reading where Gandhi said, if you do the, the right thing for the right reason, you will generally be protected. You know, I've been a better journalist than I am person. I, I, I don't get, I don't always get things right in my private life, but as a journalist... Well, who does? Yeah, <laughs> but as a journalist, I had a really good instinct. I could see ethical dilemmas coming miles before they hit. And if I was doing a story, I'd always ask myself, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing it for the right reason? And I found Aboriginal people were amazingly good at picking up whether you were doing the right thing for the right reason and they could spot bullshitters real quick and that's another thing about Jane too I reckon she's got that instinct I reckon Mm. she's brilliant I reckon she reads people really well and Mm. reads them quickly I know that you're relatively new to Igniting Change but (laughs) but what is the one thing Igniting Change has taught you I suppose the thing I'd come back to first and last is um, Igniting Change works I've never doubted there's lots of good intentions in the world. I've never doubted there's lots of people who want the world to be better. I've never doubted that there's lots of people who are going to put their money to try and make things better. But you see so many things fail. So many things fail. And, um, And this works. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, see the person, not the label.